0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Lamisa Abdelati from the Maxwell School of Syracuse University. Today, I'll be talking to Erin Snyder about her book, Marketing Democracy The Political Economy of Democracy Aid in the Middle East. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. It challenges us to think critically about the effectiveness of democracy aid and how democracy promotion programs are designed. Erin, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
0: So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Uh, so I'm currently an assistant professor of international affairs at Texas A&M University's Bush School of Government and Public Service, uh, where most of my research and teaching focuses on the political economy of development. Uh, in the Middle East, uh, The Politics of Democracy Assistance, uh, and Foreign Aid.
0: Well, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Um, So how did you come to write this book?
1: Right. So that question is one I've been asked a lot in the last few months. And and as I always explain, uh, the roots of the actual uh, book itself extend, uh, again, a million years ago, uh, in uh, sort of just after, uh, uh, well, the post nine eleven era began. So in, in 2002, effectively. So Uh, Before I uh, began doctoral research, before I went back to graduate school, I spent several years working um, on something wholly different uh, from democracy programs. Uh, So uh, I spent uh, several years working on landmines. So I have a lot of uh, expertise on landmines if I'm ever in a a zombie apocalypse situation where I need to remove a landmine. Um, So I spent uh, several years working on humanitarian uh, demining, so removing mines, landmines um, uh, from countries around the world. Uh, both in the State Department, the U.S. State Department, and then after that um, experience uh, working for uh, an NGO um, that was supporting the United Nations uh, mine clearing uh, programs throughout the world. So in that capacity, um, I was a program manager uh, for landmine removal programs in Afghanistan, uh, in Bosnia, Cambodia, Croatia, Mozambique, and Vietnam. And so... um, that experience was um, transformative in a number of ways. Um, particularly, my experience working in uh, Afghanistan um, in early 2002. So most folks remember, of course, that time, um, both extremely tumultuous and also uh, tremendously exciting in terms of you know thinking then about the possibilities uh, for where Af- uh, Afghanistan might go. And of course, the situation today, you know, you know, obviously completely depressing um, and wholly different from that time frame. But I was working on um, delivering um, or helping the U- U- UN's capacity to deliver um, money, in essence, like money to D miners who were doing important work throughout the country. Um, and given what was going on at that time, there wasn't um, the formal ways that we might work um, were completely disrupted. Um, and so part of my job when I was there for a few months was to figure out ways of getting these resources uh, to people, D miners who needed them most, um, and, you know, it was um, it was an exciting uh, period. It was um, uh, extremely um, uh, eye opening for me. Uh, it was the first time I had been to that country, the first time working with people with whom I'd only been in contact with by email. Um, and I was enormously pressed by, you know, how um, locals themselves, right, Afghans who were you know running these programs and doing the actual work um, were You know, delivering from the UN's perspective, at least, extraordinary results. They were already doing that before the situation changed after 9-11. But it had the reputation in sort of my UN circles of the programs that we were managing anyway, uh, of being uh, the most effective, the most impactful um, and the least corrupt. Um, as well, which many people, I think, who might be, you know, have experience working in the developing world or maybe in in that specific part of the world might be surprised by. But for me, it was a sort of the takeaways were, you know, okay you know, as most scholars of international peace know that, you know, local peace building efforts, development programs tend to work best, not surprisingly, uh, when locals are involved and engaged and guiding these programs. And so that was a key example of, okay, this is something that is working and is working really well. After that experience, I had already had an interest in in, um, going back uh, into uh, a research program um, and sort of trying to uh, take that practical experience and sort of understand the theoretical implications, different directions that that research could take. And that brought me to um, uh, graduate school. It brought me back to my long-term interest in the Middle East more broadly. Um, And of course, again, this is post 9-11 era. This is also around the time. Um, that the then Bush administration was beginning to focus uh, much more uh, robustly, uh, financially speaking, and aggressively, and I mean that in a tactical sense as well, uh, on democracy aid programs. And so, again, this is my own interest in the Middle East at this time frame, my own interest in development, and you know, a really um, a keen interest in what was going on in the mid 2000s. Right. So at this time frame, um, the Bush administration was basically um, uh, identifying democracy assistance um, as an enormous strategic priority uh, in the post 9-11 era to tackle extremism and terrorism. And so the logic, you know, in a nutshell, um, is that, you know, we have more democracy, we'll have less terrorism. Right. So we should spend much more money on democracy aid programs around this time frame. Again, this is 2005, 2006. Um, Uh, A very influential and important report uh, that was commissioned by the U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, Many people know it by its acronym, USAID, and this is the primary agency in the United States that manages uh, foreign aid. Um, They had commissioned um, a cross-national quantitative study trying to assess uh, the impact and effectiveness of its spending on democracy programs worldwide. Right, so it was a it was a extremely sophisticated study. Um, you know, I think it involved maybe uh, something like 900 variables built into the study, trying basically to ask to answer the question: Does spending on democracy aid work? Um, and you know, many um, brilliant political scientists were involved as part of this project. Um, they presented their findings at a meeting of the American Political Science Association that I attended as a graduate student, um, and I was you know, blown away by sort of the scope of the project, um, but not unlike many uh, many folks, I think, who were familiar with the study, also came away with many more questions about things that were missing from it, right? So the conclusion that the authors um, came to was that, yes, spending on democracy aid works. Um, it seems to work everywhere except the Middle East, or, or basically, I think, with, if I'm remembering their words correctly, it works more in what they call difficult contexts without elaborating on that, without, with the exception of the Middle East, right? So sort of my question, of course, is, okay, well, why, why isn't it working in this region, the region that I, you know, am familiar with and that I've spent a lot of time in. Um, and also this, you know, you know, seems strange given the enormous amount of funding that the United States um, had committed to democracy aid in the region. Um, so, um, At that point, I was sort of, you know, in the beginning stages of putting together my own research proposals for my PhD. And this is sort of what um, was just a puzzle that was fascinating to me that I couldn't let go. And I wanted to understand what was actually happening on the ground. Um, And one of the striking things about this particular study is that you know, again, extremely sophisticated and with these sorts of studies with a cross national aggregate, you know, study of democracy, there's only so much you can capture in a study like this, right. But from my perspective and my own experiences in the development world, um, the actual politics of democracy aid wasn't in you know, a study it wasn't reflected in a study like this, and nor could it be. Right, this was sort of beyond the scope of what the authors are intending. And so, I really wanted to see, you know, what was actually happening on the ground. How is this uh, form of aid actually working in practice? So that's a very long story as to how I came about, uh, you know, the, the the doctoral research that would then expand into this book.
0: That's a fascinating trajectory, um, and it it's actually a great segue into my next question, which is. Uh... Can you tell us what sort of research you did for this book?
1: Yeah, so um, in the very sort of early, most naive stages uh, of this book, um, I thought, okay, well, if I want to understand why this aid doesn't seem to be working, and I sort of, when I'm, you know, uh, listeners can't see, see that I'm doing air quotes on this, but I am for their benefit, if we want to understand how this aid is working, if we understand, want to understand why it doesn't seem to have much of an impact. Well, then maybe the first starting point is that, okay, I will gather all the information I can on these programs, right? Just as a starting point to see what programs exist um, throughout states and the region, um, what kind of funds are being committed to these projects, um, who's doing these projects, right? So fundamental questions of, okay, what kind of projects are we talking about here? Um, uh, how much money is being committed by them? Who's actually doing them? Um, how long are they implemented on the ground, et cetera? But finding that data was enormously difficult. It's not, as I note in the book, impossible, um, but it was very challenging. And also what I could find wasn't really telling me a lot. Um, And so these were signals of, okay, there, there, there has to be more going on here. And so simply assembling data on what, USA, what USAID has funded in the region um, isn't really illuminating here, right? So naturally, of course, you, you want to speak to the people that are involved. Um, and so, as the research would develop, um, you know, most of the research for this book focuses on uh, democracy assistance in Egypt and Morocco. And I can talk more about my reasons for uh, selecting both of those countries uh, in a minute. But uh, You know, in both of those countries, um, you know, it's not only thinking about what can I supplement to the data that I've already collected through um, online sources, through archival material, um, but how can I sort of flesh this out? Uh, by talking with AID officials on the ground, by talking with program managers, by talking with recipients um, of this form of aid? Um, And can I also talk with, you know, ideally, you know, uh, representatives of recipient governments? So in this case, um, the U.S.'s counterparts in both the Moroccan and Egyptian uh, governments. Um, And also, what can we learn from looking at the practices of authors or of the actors that are engaged in this form of aid? In my own research over the last few years, I've been really, um, you know, inspired by and and um, you know, just you know, completely influenced, uh, of course, by development scholars who are not only looking at what's going on in the ground, uh, but by scholars who have talked about the importance of looking at practices, right? So thinking about um, how people are doing things, the ways in which they are doing things, and what that can also tell us and illuminate uh, about questions about impact and effectiveness. Um, And when we talk about the practices of actors, we're talking about fundamentally ways of doing things, right? Um, And these are things that you can pick up uh, by looking at uh, conference proceedings. So this is the archival research component of the book. Um, Workshop proceedings that have happened uh, in the U.S. government about democracy aid more broadly. Um, uh, Diplomatic cables, right? So how people are talking about things both uh, diplomats that deal with this democracy aid and also the practitioners that are sort of engaged with USAID's broader constellation um, of democracy aid programming. Um, and then again, you know, pretty much straightforward, again, looking at the grassroots level, interviewing, talking with, spending time with uh, people who have extensive experience on the ground with these programs. Um, one of the challenges when you're looking at USAID in the region or democracy aid in the region and you are trying to understand maybe the government's perspective of of working in this area is that, um, you know, U.S. diplomats uh, in both the U.S. embassies and in USAID missions um, are only there for two to three years, right? And so if you as a researcher are interested in sort of capturing the institutional history um, of this aid, you know, you have to dig a little bit deeper and try to also find people who worked in those areas over time. And that was something that was important for me to do. Um, So again, through sort of a snowball uh, process uh, for, you know, interviewing, you know, um, how can I find the people that have been working in this country over time and so how can I piece these stories together to get a really um, nuanced understanding of the politics that have been involved with democracy aid both from um, the donor government side so in this case for the book the US government side but also on the recipient actor side um, in Egypt and and in and in Morocco
0: that's very helpful so in, in the book, you adopt what you describe as a political economy approach to studying democracy aid. What do you mean by that?
1: yeah so um, I'm I would identify myself as you know first and foremost a scholar of development uh, but a, also a scholar of political economy um, and political economy uh, can mean a whole host of things to different people but you know sort of the most basic understanding is how politics affects the economy and vice versa and so uh, for for me and for what I'm interested in if you want to understand how anything works you um, a political economy framework and a lens is enormously illuminating. And so um, a lot of my work has been very much influenced uh, by some of the sort of giants in the field of political economy um, who've tried to understand um, or using uh, frameworks in in the study of political economy, um, how things like ideas, um, interests and institutions impact and influence the politics that we see just more broadly. So um, what that means in translation for my own work is that Again, um, I felt, um, as I mentioned at the outset, um, that I felt very frustrated uh, by the the direction of research on democracy promotion. Um, so again, in the early 2000s, there was that USAID study that I mentioned, um, and a lot of our colleagues started doing extremely interesting work, again, in the same line of trying to understand how this um, form of aid is working. Um, and again, I, you know... Really appreciate some of the findings and the direction of that. But again, I wanted to again really understand how this aid was working on the ground. And so um, I also wanted to understand things again that maybe more quantitative approaches to democracy aid couldn't tell us, right? So how do these how do these programs uh, come into existence? How are they negotiated? Um, how are they executed on the ground? What informs the conception or the ideas of democracy that are actually um, used in these programs, right? Because when we talk about democracy, for example, it can mean a whole host of things uh, to, to everyone. Um, and so uh, to go back to your question, um, the part of trying to part of um, understanding why this aid hasn't been um, as impactful or as effective. Um, As we as we think it might be, given the amount of money that's been expended for it, um, we can, I think, understand through um, a framework, a political economy framework um, that thinks about how ideas, interests and institutions uh, that are engaged in this aid mediate and shape the actual form and construction uh, of democracy aid in the region. So when I talk about ideas, I'm thinking again, as I just mentioned, uh, sort of how people are talking about democracy promotion, how they're talking about democracy aid, how they think this aid should work. When we talk about interests, we can think about the interests of different actors that are engaged in, in this form of aid. We can think about the incentive structures that govern, uh, let's say the the individuals that work in the government from the government side of things, both in the US and in Egypt and Morocco, Um, the incentive structures of contractors who are working um, on these particular kinds of programs. And we talk about the institutions that are engaged in this too. We're thinking about broader institutional politics, not only just uh, USAID, which is the primary focus in this book, or the respective uh, governments um, in Egypt and Morocco. But we're also thinking about, uh, I'm thinking about anyway, the foreign aid bureaucracy in Washington DC. Because again, part of the story of understanding why this aid hasn't been impactful, you can only really understand and answer um, if you're paying attention to not surprisingly, the domestic politics um, of what's going on in the United States too. And that's an important backdrop for this book, um, which I talk about in the first couple chapters. and sort of under, understanding changes in the US foreign bu- foreign aid bureaucracy with how foreign aid more broadly is managed, but particularly the, the subset of democracy aid as well, too. And this is something that researchers can, you know, can sort of think about. It doesn't have to be just from the US side. It could be thinking about, um, you know, our friends in the UK with DFID, with other organizations elsewhere and thinking about donor uh, recipient state relations.
0: Right. So on that note, um, the book spends quite a bit of time looking at the foreign aid and democracy aid bureaucracy in the United States and how ideas about democracy developed over time right there. Can you give us sort of an overview of your findings on that?
1: Yeah. So again, this was part of the deep dive and trying to understand um, how it is we got to where we are today. Um, And many scholars um, and analysts of democracy aid, of course, know that this isn't a new thing. It's not a new thing now. It wasn't a new thing, even in 2004, when it was sort of the the sexy area of focus of the Bush administration. Uh, This was aid that, again, has its, I mean, the the roots of this form of aid arguably go back to the early 20th century um, and maybe even to the late 19th century. But it really began in earnest in the 1980s. Again, this is in the context of sort of the end stages of the Cold War. um, when We have the establishment of the National endowment for democracy. But it's really when we have sort of the dissolution of the Soviet Union um, that we start to see really the uh, enormous spending uh, and much more of a focus on democracy aid in the early 1990s. So again, in the wake of uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, a focus on what's going on in Eastern Europe. And there's a a really um, thoughtful, you know, a thoughtful effort, I think, by many people that were working in the US government to sort of say, okay, you know, We see this as sort of the vindication, uh, this moment in history is sort of the vindication of our particular model of liberal democracy. And we also see this as an an opportunity to sort of expand and develop um, programs that we think are important for um, supporting our form of democracy, right? So um, uh, agencies like USAID start to put together conferences, workshops uh, to sort of figure out, okay, we wanna focus on democracy aid, we have all of this money to do so, so how do we do it? Um, and what struck me in some of this work is, again, how thoughtful um, some of the ideas were. And so when I say thoughtful, uh, I mean that we, we have, you know, clear evidence of, you know, uh, folks within USAID reaching out uh, to our colleagues in academia, you know, scho- uh, scholars who are experts on democratization broadly, but also experts on democracy in particular regions of the world. So in Latin America... Africa, in Europe, etc. And so uh, there, there were a whole host of, you know, really detailed uh, workshop and conference proceedings, where these scholars were saying, you know, uh, this is great that you want to do this. Uh, but here's also why you should be cautious, right? And here's some things you should pay attention to. Um, and also, here are some reasons why, you know, these things or these democracy programs are probably not going to work in the way that you think they're going to work. Um, so some sort of warnings, again, from an academic perspective, that the process of democratization, not surprisingly for listeners uh, of this podcast, um, is complex. We don't know exactly, we can't say with certainty how one country becomes democratic. There's a whole host of you know um, strong findings over the last uh, two decades, three decades by political scientists Saying maybe perhaps if we focus on economic reform, that's the best recipe for getting us to democracy, and that was certainly the 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 guiding um, idea in the early um, stages of U.S. democracy programming assistance. But I was struck by again um, because I think it becomes it's it's very easy for scholars now to be critical um, of the United States, and I, I certainly am in, in different capacities. But at this early stage, uh, people were trying to learn as much as they could in a short period of time. Um, and trying to do what they thought was best. But we what we also see in this timeframe, um, again, this is 1991, 1992 um, uh, that I'm referring to. We start shifting to 1994 and politics in Washington, in Washington DC starts to change, right? So the Republicans um, begin to have uh, more and more influence and control over the US Congress um, and things start changing within the foreign aid bureaucracy. So in general, democracy assistance has enjoyed enormous bipartisan support. So both Democrats and Republicans have been extremely supportive of democracy aid programs. Um, And this has been pretty much a constant. Uh, The execution and the how, they sort of differ in some ways, but in general, it's one of the few areas I think in foreign policy where we can see strong bipartisan support uh, for this particular form of aid. Um, So while we have this sort of rhetorical enthusiasm for democracy aid, um, things start to change in in Washington, D.C. And what I mean by that is that um, from the Republican uh, sector of Congress, um, we have strong critiques about uh, foreign aid in general. So uh, Senator Jesse Helms, Newt Gingrich, and others, um, you know, have this line and mentality that you know uh, basically thinks of foreign assistance as social welfare for de- developing countries, right? And um, you know, they point to evidence of corruption with past USAID programs, uh, sort of the evidence to basically shut the agency down um, in general. And I think it was Senator Helms uh, who uh, has some you know quote where he said if he you know if it was up to him he would reform USAID out of existence. Um, so again, on the one hand, you have this rhetorical enthusiasm for democracy promotion. At the same time, there are steps to basically um, sort of neuter USAID's work. Um, USAID as a you know result of what was going on during this timeframe was brought under the control of the State Department um, I think in the process of restructuring, um, again, the foreign aid bureaucracy, maybe more than a thousand uh, development practitioners were sort of, you know, let go from USAID. Um, How AID worked in general started to change. So um, many listeners might know, of course, that the work of AID in the State Department is necessarily different. So USAID as a development agency is focused on long-term time horizons. And, you know, our, you know, colleagues, friends in the State Department are focused on short-term time horizons. And so naturally, we can appreciate that there's going to be some conflict in the conceptions of development work and how to do it. And so we start to see that coming up in the late 1990s. Um, and we start to see the impact of what the changes are to the sort of neutering of USAID and the sort of you know, em- de-emphasis on or, or the sort of cultivation of development expertise. So, the nature of USAID's work starts to change, not just for Democracy Aid, but for some of its other programs. So you don't see, again, sort of um, career USAID people in charge of programs or implementing them. We start, start to see that work um, contracted out to for and not for profit companies. Um, and in some ways they start to lose, USAID starts to lose control of who's doing what and the incentive structure changes with some of these actors. Um, and so one of the things that um, I found in my research um, in some of the archival research that I had done is that USAID was um, very concerned about the impact of these changes. And so. Naturally, you would think that a, a development agency, you know, wants to know how its own work is being done. Right. So after a project is done, they want to see a report showing what was what worked, what was great, you know, et cetera. Um, and so if a lot of the work is being contracted out, um, it becomes in some ways harder to get good feedback from a lot of the contracting organizations that are doing this work. Um, and so some of those organizations were not incentivized um, to share some of the details of what they were doing. Um, and so an audit that USAID had, had done of these programs basically said, look, you know, one of the problems is that a contracting organization for this program doesn't want to share in detail what it's doing because it want to it wants to maintain an advantage vis-à-vis other organizations with whom it's competing, right, for grants and projects. Um, and this is again, this is a tension that. Um, you know, has existed again, since the early 1990s. Um, But again, this is sort of connected to my bigger questions of, you know, not only how things are working on the ground in the Middle East, but also what's going on in Washington DC to change the incentive structure away from, again, um, thinking about how to support uh, indigenous concerns, what, you know, uh, indigenous uh, demands are for democracy, excuse me, Um, and also uh, thinking about how to aid, make aid more responsive.
0: Wonderful. So a- after that analysis, you move on to examining two countries in the Middle East, as you mentioned, Egypt and Morocco. Uh, and you have this really great title for the Egypt chapter. Uh, it's called Neoliberalism on the Nile, which links up nicely with the title of the book, which is Marketing Democracy. Um, and that's kind of a, a hint about so your findings in that chapter. So what what can you tell us about the ways that democracy aid evolved in Egypt?
1: Yeah, so Egypt was um, one of the um, sort of, uh, you know, model, well, model's a bit too much probably, but was was the key focus of the U.S.'s democracy efforts in the Middle East, right? So in this early period of the 1990s, when the agency is trying to think about what it wants to do worldwide for its democracy programs, um, Egypt, Indonesia, Nigeria, um, and a um, forgetting the name of another country, but those were the countries that the, that the United States wanted to focus on. Egypt was the focus in particular because it is you know, the biggest Arab country in the region. Um, it has enormous influence in the Arab world. Um, hugely important, um, as many listeners may know, for U.S. Uh, security interests in the reg- region. And so even at the early stages in the 1990s, there was a, a recognition that Egypt is important. We don't know how it's going to be important, but maybe we ought to start he- ought to start here.
0: And so how, how does democracy aid wind up uh, evolving uh, in that country?
1: Yeah, so again, you know, in the early stages, we have um, examples of, you know, again, thoughtful approaches to understand the challenges uh, to what was going on in Egypt. Um, but one of one of the main questions, you know, motivating this book in general was not just trying to understand why this aid um, Wasn't didn't seem to have much of an impact in the region or you know, have much of an effect on democratization in general. Was a more fundamental question that was really missing from most uh democracy aid scholarship, um, which is why would an authoritarian state even allow this form of aid? Um, you know, it's a question that seems so obvious, you know, we think in some ways we've tackled it head on. Um, but it was missing. and It obviously seemed hugely important in terms of understanding why this aid hasn't, you know, worked. Um, One of the foremost scholars of democracy assistance, one of the the earliest scholars of democracy assistance, uh, Tom Carruthers, you know, uh, you know, tells us that, you know, this aid is intended to challenge the structure of power, ultimately, right, in any country, sort of broadly defined. So, you know, if you're dealing with a form of aid that's intended to challenge the structure of power, why would an authoritarian state you know, allow it. So this is also a huge part of, you know, my sort of area of inquiry in this book. Um, And so um, essentially what I find is that, you know, not surprisingly, their authoritarian states or the ones that I'm studying in in general um, are getting something from it. Um, And so looking at what was going on in the early 1990s in Egypt in particular, and then of course, later in Morocco, as I talk about also later in the book, uh, tells us something about that. So You know, the findings of the book are in general that U.S. democracy aid programs um, haven't done much to challenge the structure of power in the region. Um, And by looking at what's going on in the field and, again, leveraging, you know, over a decade of uh, field work and archival work um, on the Middle East or in the Middle East and Washington, D.C., um, I show basically that, you know, previous studies haven't really paid uh, much attention to the fact that democracy aid programs are often negotiated deals. Um, And this I think is significant um, for both the literatures on democracy aid and authoritarianism in general. So I show um, essentially that recipient governments can and do help craft uh, the design of democracy aid programs. And this is intrinsically linked to that question of why aren't these working right in the way that we think that they should should be working. and scholars of the Middle East who, who might be listening again, um, who maybe uh, haven't read um, uh, uh, this book, you know, might think, well, of course, the answer to all of these questions is about security, right? And so there's lots of um, really great scholarship uh, by colleagues in Middle East politics um, who've talked about, you know, how security concerns have sort of shaped democratization in general um, in the Middle East. And so. Um, this book um, and my findings, um, you know, definitely uh, you know develop and 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 back that up uh, to a T. But I think again, sort of illuminating why governments, want to actually allow, even allow this aid and sort of their hand in this, um, I think is enormously important um, for, you know, not just understanding why things haven't worked, but also potential obstacles, not just in the Middle East, but also in other hybrid regimes around the world, other restrictive contexts where well-meaning donors, activists um, want to support democracy, but sort of have to be cognizant uh, of the obstacles with that. So some examples from Egypt, just to kind of, you know, flesh out um, that point that I just made um, is that in the early 1990s, um, again, you have well-meaning people from USAID. Um, USAID has reached out to scholars of Egypt. So um, I talk about those scholars in particular in the book um, who are engaged with these projects, who put together, you know, um, very smart, astute analyses of what they think should happen um, in the region or in Egypt in particular. Um, And we, you know, I uncovered so many different stories of, you know, uh, AID-sponsored democracy programs that um, wanted to, let's say, push um, elements of democracy program much more aggressively in Egypt uh, that were basically uh, diluted uh, by the Egyptian regime. So one example in particular um, uh, I talk about in the book is a civil society program Uh, That, you know, for most of us, if you would read the elements of this program, program would seem pretty banal. Um, But from the Egyptian government's perspective, it was inherently threatening, right? It's something that um, is potentially challenging um, its authority in particular parts of the country. But this project, I think, in particular was in Cairo. And the AID official who was working on this program um, was really pushing his counterparts and the Egyptian government um, quite hard um, in trying to realizing the aims of this particular project. Um, And his counterparts uh, basically were trying to shut him down. And so... Again, when we think about uh, what I mentioned before about uh, the importance of strategic relationships, right, and sort of uh, um, casting a particular direction on programs, um, we have, I think, one of the first early instances of this with this particular story in maybe 1994, 1995, where um, this AID official was frustrated that he didn't, in the end, didn't get support from his colleagues in AID. He said, look, I'm trying to do this program, um, but my counterparts in the, Egypt, in the Egyptian government, um, you know, are making this impossible for me. Can you help me? Um, those Egyptian counterparts were also signaling to his superiors in AID of, you know, we're not we're not happy with this program, so let's figure out something a different direction uh, for the program. Um, in the end, this particular gentleman was removed from the program because he was seen as, you know, pushing too hard. Um, and it was sort of, you know, his sort of takeaway was that you know, I think uh, one of his quotes was something to the effect of, well, it's Egypt, and Egypt is always going to get the money in the end. Um, In other words, that the nature of the relationship between the US and Egypt is such um, that um, they have leverage, basically, to say no to us, um, broadly defined, but particularly for these kinds of programs that, you know, if if the, the counterparts in the Egyptian government say this is going to be problematic for our relationship, you know the the program is going to be bailed or diluted, and so we had another example by the end of the 1990s for a, a big civil society uh, project uh, for an NGO center um, that um, you know was seen and had some support within the Egyptian government in the in the late 1990s. Um, but we see that same dynamic where there's um, uh, a great deal of resistance coming from counterparts in the Egyptian government, uh, resistance from AID officials who were trying to um, you know, strengthen this program, trying to work with civil society activists and getting this program started. Um, uh, and in this back and forth process that we see, again, this comes through interviews and archival work as well. Um, we see basically in that in this back and forth between AID officials and their Egyptian counterparts, um, the the program objectives are significantly diluted down from the original objectives that AID officials had at the outset. Uh, so much so for this particular Um, this particular project um, that some of the people that were engaged on it said, you know, look, it effectively in the end did nothing. It began with good intentions. um, But one US official who was very familiar with the project said in the end it became, actually it was a more perverse consequence of the program. It became a way for the uh, Egyptian government to sort of survey, to monitor civil society activists. Um, So the sort of, you know, empowerment angle of this particular program and the intentions of it uh, completely disappeared uh, as a process of that back and forth.
0: That's uh, really remarkable. One of the things that I want to really underline for listeners is that, um, you know, the the book does a great job of uh, bringing across how it is that the conception of democracy um, sort of shifts to more of a focus on economic reforms and that this shifted focus also results in some cases uh, in situations where it's actually the economic interests of the authoritarian regimes that are being rewarded. And so as a result, the democracy aid programs do do not have uh, d- democratizing results, right? Ra- rather, they're, they're sort of uh, further reinforcing and, and strengthening these regimes. Um, but I wanna move to your other case, which is Morocco, uh, where, the, where we see some of these dynamics play out as well. Um, in, in what ways uh, was democracy aid in Morocco similar to or different from Egypt?
1: Yeah so there are a lot of similarities and I'll I'll just um, back up uh, just a little bit and, and talk about why I chose to focus on Morocco and Egypt in particular um Egypt as i mentioned um earlier again was you know the early focus of USAID's efforts um has received uh, some of the most significant funding um, from the United States for Democracy Programming. And I have had already, you know, uh, I will admit, I uh, had a, already an interest in, and uh, spent time working in Egypt as well, too. So it was not only, you know, that it worked out conveniently for me in the case that I wanted to choose, but I had spent a great deal of time uh, in Egypt as well. Uh, Morocco I chose because I had also spent time in Morocco, but it was also uh, one of the countries, um, both countries are two of the highest um, democracy aid recipients of U.S funding uh, in general since 1990. Um, they are, of course, very different kinds of regimes, they're very different kinds of authoritarian regimes. Uh, Egypt until 2011, we would classify as a one-party dominant state. Of course, it's something very different now. Uh, and Morocco, of course, a constitutional monarchy, although most people who know Morocco, and the same could be said of Jordan as well, a constitutional monarchy may be a name only because essentially all power, you know, sort of rests with its king. Um, So we have two very different kinds of countries, uh, two very different kinds of uh, types of regimes, uh, and two countries who are important to the United States, but in very different ways. So um, Egypt, of course, much more um, uh, of a bigger interest and focus for the U.S.'s uh, geopolitical strategic interest in the region, although Morocco um, you know, is also considered of strategic interest to to the, to the United States as well, too. So I was interested in sort of seeing, again, you know, based off of the time I'd spent in Egypt, what was going on in Morocco as well, too. Because in Morocco, you have um, something, uh, a lot of very different dynamics that are going on. In some ways, there is more space for civil society, um, but you also see um, elements of civil society that are co-opted by um, the Moroccan uh, regime. Um, in the same way, you see some elements of that Um, in Egypt as well. Um, The amount of funding is dramatically different, um, but we see some of the same dynamics that we see in Egypt, where again, strategic interests are in the end responsible for diluting some of the focus of the democracy aid programs. In other words, U.S. officials not really ready to go the the full mile for backing up some of these programs and really supporting civil society if they sort of cross a line uh, that. Um, you know, that the the Moroccan government, that the regime has sort of set for itself as well, too. Um, but what we see in Morocco is something uh, really interesting as well, too. So um, I talk about how, um, you know, recipient states, you know, do have some leverage, right, in the execution of these programs. And this is sort of um, uh, something in general, I think, that we find in different kinds of restrictive, restrictive states that receive democracy aid. Uh, but Morocco, in some ways, um, had some leverage in terms of having different patrons that it could play off of the United States. So um, Morocco has uh, much closer trading relations with um, states in Europe, for example. So with France in particular, which most people wouldn't be surprised by, significant relations, right? Um, With uh, Spain, uh, with the UK as well, too. Um, And that came up in you know, countless interviews that I had done, right? So if the US is going to be difficult with us, we always have the French, or we we don't need your funding and resources. Um, We always have this element or this, you know, this, this other sort of card we can play. Um, And this comes up, you know, um, or this sort of like, I think leverage is exerted uh, more forcefully after 9-11, right? So if we think about what the United States was concerned about after 9-11, this is something that, recipient governments in in the middle east were quite savvy about right it's like well you need us you need us for helping you uh with fighting terrorism and you know uh fighting extremism um and so we're going to ask that you not push us in this case i'm speaking of the moroccan regime we're not we're, we're going to ask that you not push us very hard on the democracy aid bit here because you need us right and so this was something a point of frustration that was echoed to me by uh um, Moroccan activists, uh, Moroccan recipients of democracy aid, and also by um, USAID officials um, working in that country. Um, and one of the things that I, I talk about in the book as well, when I, I, I've been mentioning that I, you know, spoke with the USAID officials in both Egypt and Morocco, um, but it's important to note that there are different kinds of officials, right? So there are Americans that come through. Um, in these missions, in these embassies. And there is something also in diplomatic parlance called local nationals. So these are Egyptians and Moroccans that are working um, within these agencies as well too. And if you talk with them, you, you tend to get a longer institutional history Uh, of what's going on because they've been working in these offices, you know, for, in some cases, decades. Um, And so what I was told and what I remember uh, from one um, uh, Moroccan employee of uh, USAID who had been with these programs from the get go is that, you know, a frustration with not only that from his perception The U.S. wasn't pushing hard enough in some areas, but also that the U.S. wasn't interested in or focused on other areas or conceptions of democracy uh, promotion. Um, And so one of the things that you and I have talked about um, uh, a little bit in our time together is, again, that there are different forms of democracy. There are different ways of thinking about promoting democracy. And, you know, what we see in both Egypt and Morocco, um, you know, since the early 1990s um, as sort of a common strategy is focusing on economic reform. Right, and this reflected a lot of the academic literature that if we focus on economic reform, um, economic liberalization, then maybe, maybe that will, you know, help generate the conditions that might give rise to political liberalization. So not even democratization, but political liberalization. Um, And this was in line with a lot of the um, efforts that were going on in both Egypt and Morocco uh, to have their own economic reform programs, right? That were very much about um, moving towards a more, uh, moving more robustly towards a market economy. And so the thinking in the democracy aid offices is that this is what we need to focus on. One, because um, this is what the governments are doing already, right? And so if we have their ear on this, then maybe that's the strategy that we can sort of have a foothold, establish a foot uh, in this area with the idea that, you know, if things change in the country. If the governments become more receptive, then we can expand into other areas of programming. Right. So even if we accept that, you know, this is not the correct strategy or approach, the strategy in the early 1990s in both countries was let's focus on economic reform because this is what both governments are talking about. Um, And this is, you know, maybe we can have an audience and an ear, but it became very clear um, from Moroccans in this case, and also in Egyptians that this was problematic. Why? Because we know now that in many uh, cases, well, in both cases, that elements of economic reform were being used by the regime to strengthen itself. Right. So as the authoritarian state is sort of, um, uh, changing itself, um, adapting and responding to the economic situation. It's sort of using the tools that maybe we associate with liberalization and, de- and democratic reform to, s- to sort of strengthen the way the authoritarian state works. Um, and Moroccans and Egyptians were very cognizant that this was happening. And they were also concerned with the the quality of democracy being promoted in both countries, right? So, you you know, if you're focusing on economic reform, if you're focusing on privatization, um, as part of your democracy program, should you also not be concerned with the impact? of these economic reforms on the quality of democracy in both states. Um, And this is something that um, this is something that was enormously frustrating to both um, Egyptians and Moroccans that were working in the AID missions in both countries, because they were sort of again, seeing the impact of these broader macroeconomic reforms um, and concerned again about um, the lack of a more nuanced uh, understanding of what these reforms were doing and how they were impacting um quality of life issues that were linked to democrat- democratization or the path towards democratization in both countries
0: now we we haven't really talked about uh, talked about the Arab Spring, but I want listeners to know that that's certainly something that you talk about in the book, right? You talk about the kind of impact that the Arab Spring had or did not have on uh, on U.S. democracy aid. Um, but I'm going to jump ahead um, and ask you actually about policy implications. Um, so what would you say are the policy implications of this book? So there
1: are a few. I, I think that um, um, many listeners might remember that um, it was just in December 2021, uh, that the Biden administration um, launched what they called a summit for democracy, and it was sort of an effort in general to sort of jumpstart the thinking um, on democracy promotion, um, but also very much reflective of that administration as well as the um, uh, concerns of other governments elsewhere in the world um, about the expansion of authoritarianism, um, the sort of erosion of democracy worldwide. So, sort of in 2021, thinking about big questions about what people can do in general, and so. Um, I've been thinking a lot about not only things that I've seen in the Middle East that come that are in my book, um, but also about what the US government has been doing, how the US government thinks about these things um, in general. And one of the things that was worrying to me uh, when I heard, was listening to some of the rhetoric in December of 2021, January of 2022, was this idea of, well, democracy. democracy is important. We should promote it and support it. Um, And the discussions were more about um, how much in some ways, how many how much uh, more resources can we commit to this project? Right. So we should do it. Yes, we should do it. It's important to do it. Um, And we should devote more money to it. Um, And this sort of line of thinking was deeply boring to me. Right. Because we can appreciate that there are some positive elements of democracy, aid, you know, a whole host of positive things that can come from these programs. But it's not a problem that can simply be solved by writing larger checks for these programs. Um, And so one of the things that I've seen, uh, again, uh, in my own work is that it's not that USAID or the State Department doesn't understand um, the problems from past efforts, right? Um, One of the things that we haven't been talking about since 2021 is about sort of the source of the problems with democracy aid programs. And so one of there are lots of takeaways I hope people come away with from the book, but one of them is the need to, to really think much more thoughtfully about um, the foreign aid bureaucracy, right? How this aid is actually implemented and executed. Um, because again, it's not, you know, just you know, writing a check for $20 million to Tunisia doesn't you know immediately show an impact on Tunisia's democracy, right? Um, we need to understand why this aid isn't working. So these sort of more foundational questions of like how is this aid working? You know how can we maybe improve uh, the execution of this aid so that locals, in the best sense of the word, have the con- have control over it, is something we need to be focused on. Um, with the Middle East in general, and the the chapter that I have at the end of the book where I, I talk about the Arab Spring, uh, is important for a few reasons because you know in 2011 2012 I was living in Egypt pretty much predominantly during that time frame, um, and I was really intrigued looking at what was happening and how exciting and euphoric. Um, Those early stages of the uprising, uh, the uprising was in Egypt and you know elsewhere in the Arab world. You know the big question of how is the United States, in particular, going to respond to this moment? Um, And I talk about actually, you know, a a pretty big response, right? So USAID, you know, uh, says acknowledges publicly, look, we haven't done we haven't done well by Egypt and other states in the region. We haven't been listening to. Um, civil society as much. We haven't, you know, we haven't allowed them to sort of be at the helm of these programs. Um, now is an important moment. Now is uh, an important uh, moment of change. And we're going to devote, um, I think, it, if I'm remembering correctly, the amount was $60 million uh, to help support what was going on in Egypt then. Um, but again, just to underscore that it's it's not a problem that can easily be solved by just writing a bigger check. Um, AID did that. Um, but again, this is the, the, the challenge of working in a restrictive state. So I talk about uh, the complexities of what was going on at that time, which is that AID came in and they said, you know, we have this amount of money. They advertised uh, the amount of assistance that was available for grants in Egyptian state newspapers, both Arabic and in English. Um, and many people came, applied for these grants um, but AID wasn't transparent in where that money was going, right? And this was a tension that I thought was really fascinating because I went to some of these grant calls that AID had in Cairo at the time. And one of the things that was most worrying to me was, you know, someone at one of these uh, sessions and it was a session of, you know, how to apply for more assistance um, and what areas of assistance are you funding? Uh, someone from a civil society organization asked, you know, um you know, where have you, to whom have you given this, these funds? And they were asking because they just didn't want to replicate efforts, right? So if AID had already given its $20 million uh, designated for civil society aid, they didn't want to waste the time applying for something in that area. And the AID official became really uncomfortable. And he was like, "Wow, we don't, we don't want to share that information. We don't want to share that information. We don't want to share where that money is going um and this opened up the door i remember sitting there thinking this is going to backfire and this is going to be problematic so you know it raises lots of you know uh questions about ethics and the execution of this aid um but the egyptian government was still all of the same actors that existed before 2011 were still very much you know in government and in control at this time frame um and they you know saw this basically as USAID USAID interfering. Um, They saw it as a form of subversion. Um, And the fact that AID arguably maybe wasn't transparent about the process might've made things more complicated um, in the end. So, you know, to circle back uh, in a long way, uh, back to your question about policy implications, I think this form of aid can can be impactful, but I think without Reckoning with sort of again how this aid you know works at the for- at, at the source and the foreign aid bureaucracy, um, the chances for success I think uh, are, are uh, seem to be limited to me.
0: And you also sort of conclude the book by talking about whether. Uh whether people in the aid bureaucracy need to be thinking beyond a, a narrow procedural uh, definition of democracy as well. Now, obviously, we've only skimmed the surface of, uh, of the content uh, that's in the book, but we've taken up a lot of your time. So I just want to very quickly ask you, you know, now that the book is done and out in the world, what, what yeah. is it that you're working on now?
1: Yeah, so I have a couple projects that you know has sort of evolved naturally from from this project and, and sort of my continuing interest in the role of ideas in political economy and development. Uh, so I have uh, the the next sort of book pro, uh, book project in progress is a, a post Arab Spring book on uh, the politics of transitional assistance uh, in the Arab world and sort of looking at, um, you know, economic grievances that were sort of linked to the protests of 2011 and the the politics of developmental assistance in general, and um, sort of explaining in some ways why we're not seeing uh, more liberalization or more uh, promise in the Arab world today. Uh, another project looks at the ethics um, of not only humanitarian aid, but also democracy assistance in general. Um, and this, of course, you know, uh, you know, extends naturally from my own work and sort of understanding and wanting to, you know, add, answer the question, you know, is there an ethical way of promoting democracy, uh, which I think is an important conversation for people that care about this aid to have. Uh, so those are the two big projects uh, and another project on the role of lobbies and Middle East lobbies in Washington, D.C. as well.
0: Those all sound like great projects. And I will hope you'll come back and talk to us about your second book uh, when it comes out. i to. Um, So this book is Aaron Snyder's Marketing Democracy, The Political Economy of Democracy Aid in the Middle East, published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Thank you, Aaron, for being on the show today.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation.
0: And thank you, listeners.